Theatrical Shenanigans presents The Panel Presents with Joe Swenson, Rachel Layson, Jan Jacqueline, Tony Targan. Hello there, and welcome to our first episode of The Panel Presents of 2024. I hope you all had an amazing Christmas and New Year and are looking forward to some interesting and amusing theatrical chat. For those who've not listened to the show before, I am your host, Rachel Feeney-Williams, and every month I gather together four amazing panellists to discuss a range of theatrical-based questions. And who are the four this time? Well, let's meet them, shall we? My first panellist is based in southern Maine, USA, and his voice is one well-known on theatrical shenanigans, having performed as a voice actor in season one. He's a fabulous playwright of works that have captivated audiences all over the world, as well as winning many awards. He's been involved in theatre for over 30 years, as well as being a Marine Corps veteran. While in the Corps, he founded the Cherry Point Players, and after moving to Maine, he was intricately involved in the Belfast Maskers, was president of the Portland Players, and has co-managed the Young Persons Theatre Workshop for Lyric Music Theatre for the last four years. And if all of that wasn't enough, his company, Broken Arts Entertainment, have been producing a huge range of audio theatre for eight years, including the fabulous drama entitled The Fragile Minds series. So quite frankly, I'm amazed he's got time to speak to me. Welcome, Joe Swenson. <laughs> Thank you. He's <laughs> a busy world right now. <laughs> it is very much so. My second panellist is a New York City-based actor and playwright with a list of achievements as long as your arm. Her career started at the age of seven when she nearly spun off the stage during a tornado dance in The Wizard of Oz. Since then, she's performed all over the United States, 38 states and counting to be precise. In her world of playwriting, her work varies from theatre for young audiences to Victorian horror, with a central focus on exploring grey morality and the nuances of women's justice. She describes herself as a performer and playwright with a lot to say, so personally, I think it's great she's here. Welcome, Rachel Layson. Thank you so much for having me. Fellow Rachel. So Hello. nice to be Hello, here. Fellow Rachel, yes. <laughs> My third panellist is practically part of the fixtures and fittings on theatrical shenanigans, having performed as a voice actor twice in season two and still has many more appearances to come. In addition to that, he's a community theatre actor, director and writer from Michigan, getting into playwriting nine years ago. His works have now had many performances from New York to California. Coupled with those titles, he's also a retired attorney, a former sports writer for ESPN.com and a writer for Michigan Runner magazine. And just to make sure he keeps busy, he also recently qualified to run the Boston Marathon for the sixth time which makes me quite exhausted just thinking about it. So I'm thrilled he could find the time in that busy schedule to be here. Welcome, Tony Targan. Always glad to have time for you, Rachel. Thank you. <laughs> and last but certainly not least, we have a panellist who is Canadian-based, but British originally. She's been collaborating on writing stories with her husband since they first met over 40 years ago, and their collection of work is vast, from poetry to radio scripts. Previously, she worked as a co-founder, producer and artistic director of the Huntsville Theatre Company and currently works with Dot the T Productions. With over 40 productions and events under her belt, she was then inspired to write stage plays specifically for actors of advancing years and is also inspired in her role as grandmother to four grandchildren to create stories for children. So another busy person I'm thrilled to be able to chat to. Welcome, Jan Jacqueline. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, very happy to be here representing the over 60 uh, crowd. I love that. <laughs> okay, so uh, as always, we start with a question for each of you. What roles in a production do you think deserve the title Unsung Hero? And we'll start with Jan. 
I'm going to say always the technical. Everything from sound, uh, I think lighting is a is a character all in its own. And they have to be as familiar with the play as anybody else. So when you see their, their names and whatever in the program, and it's like way down at the bottom. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to go with uh, our wonderful sound and lighting technicians. <laughs> Friend of mine used to say a, a technician without an actor is fine. An actor without a technician is an idiot wandering about in the dark. <laughs> I love that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yay, Tony, your turn. I would say a, a good music director is absolutely imperative. Um, I've been in a few musicals. I've directed one musical, Spam a Lot, and I can't tell you how impressed I am with uh, what the music director does. It's like being a juggler, but the balls in the air are moving at different speeds, and somehow she has to adjust the timing on the fly and get both the orchestra and the singers back into sync. And if it's done seamlessly, nobody ever notices it. But um, a director will definitely appreciate the music director coordinating all that and just keeping things at the right pace. Mm. Rachel? Um, I am going to have to give a shout out to dramaturgs. Um, I feel like um, I ended up being friends with a lot of people who transitioned into being dramaturgs. And and it took me until still like about a year into playwriting to even realize what they did. So like as someone in theater, I feel like we don't even know their job description half the time. Um, but I think that they're absolutely essential to putting on a good piece, especially in development. I can't count the number of times that a dramaturg has been like, that's wildly inconsistent or like, let's let's rephrase this, let's fix this or catches an actor on an inconsistency. And like those things, all pile together to really make an impact on the end show mm. yeah absolutely and finally joe uh yeah so i agree with what everybody said jan tony and rachel um but i think the true unsung he hero is the 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 smaller role or chorus member who really gives it their all and brings everything to life because i know as a writer when i write i don't write for small roles like i don't you know the idea isn't that they're they're not going to be a contributor to the story or a contributor to to the to the process or the experience so it's it's always that's the the person that stands out when i go watch a show in the chorus that's the person that has my attention the entire time and i i just want to learn their story and they're the ones that are are the unsung hero that bring that really propel everybody else to life okay so we move back to joe what do you believe to be the single most important skill that a playwright can learn i would say that the single most important skill that a playwright can learn is is how to start like how to start your show and what i mean by that is not start by writing not start by what is is what your what your starting mechanism is to get you into into a story so my starting mechanism is twofold one is um i want to know how it ends i start with the goal of the end in mind and that for me has been the single most compelling reason why i write um it's finding that and then two finding characters building characters that are interesting and relatable and that i can throw up against the wall basically emotionally um and that's so i look for that because i know that's going to be the meat for the actors but how i start how i get into the writing part is understanding how it's going to end first having that goal in mind 
has helped me write over 135 plays in the last four years. Stephen Covey said that beginning with the end in mind is a, one of the ways of being a highly effective person and listener. And I think that definitely applies to playwriting as well, because if you don't know where you're going, then certainly nobody else is going to. <laughs> going back to what you said about throwing characters against a wall, we do end up in so, almost like an, a half abusive relationship with our characters. By the time you get to the end of some plays, you kind of think, oh, my God, if this was a real person, I would be in prison by now, huh? Especially with your plays, <laughs> Rachel. <I> very dare you. <laughs> so everyone has their own unique kind of process. I think that's what mm. makes playwriting such a, a wide hobby. Is it? It covers so many people from so many all over the world in all walks of life who write about all sorts of different things. And yet, it does come back to what you're saying. Uh, starting. I would challenge anybody to, because you know, it's easy for a playwright to get pigeonholed into like a, a genre or mm. uh, or a way they are, you know, and, and and people kind of feel that way. Like there's people in our community that I'm like, oh, that's so that's definitely that person's, you know, kind of <laughs> signature. And we all have it, right? We all have that signature. Um, but I think I also challenge challenge any playwright to step out of that and mm. try something new. Like I don't write a lot of comedy, but when I do, it's weird. And sometimes it's very, it's very funny too. Hmm? Yeah, very funny. Yeah, and it's so helpful because I feel like if you're a person who normally writes drama and you try your hand at writing a little bit of comedy, it just makes your dramas better, even if you never end up showing that comedy to anyone, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. I feel very chaotic. I feel like I always start in the middle because I have to start with whatever scene sparked the original idea, mm. or I will just like never get back to it. I feel like if I can get that scene down or that moment down, then I have something to build towards or from. I sometimes like to start with um, sort of being in the middle of action. Like I once wrote a short play that the only inspiration I had was the words don't jump. And just by starting with don't jump, I already had created a situation where there had to be action and hopefully it would grab the audience's attention and then it just kind of developed from there so i don't always know the end either but um sometimes a strong beginning can really kind of propel you right into the action and that's the great thing about it you can be inspired by literally anything whether it's a, a full-blown uh, brief um a picture or even just as you say two words the, am the amount that can stem from that is unbelievable. I, I'm usually inspired by um, people I've met, which is very scary for people who I've met. Uh, <laughs> I love, I love their foibles. I love their, um, you know, the, their little uh, idiosyncrasies. I love, um, uh, and then I also love like a, a troubling situation. And that's where I would usually start. I'm usually inspired by something in real life or a person in real life. I, I'm, I, I love that. I, I come across a situation and I think, oh, I, I, that, that's a care. I've got to use that. Mostly I'm inspired by people that I meet, even in a grocery store, wherever I'll see, um, you know, a mom with their child or whatever. And I think, oh, God, you know judgmental I love being judgmental as a playwright I think it's brilliant and you can just put that on the page and it's not me speaking of course 
But by using uh, like people and events in real life, it takes playwriting back to that idea of it almost being therapy as well. I've had people say this to me a lot, that playwriting is a therapy. And it is. I mean, I can always tell the plays I've written when I'm angry because mm-hmm. there'll be a long ranting speech and there'll be a lot more swearing involved. <laughs> Especially when you show them to people who like know you really well and mm-hmm. they're like, okay, an audience might not know who this is, but I know who you're talking about here and you can't put this line in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have people that say that all the time to me though. Is it, did you write this about me? No, no. <laughs> but isn't that what we're supposed to do? I mean, it's art imitating life. I mean, that is uh, exactly what we're doing. And if the, and and if somebody can see themselves in a character, uh, it'd be like, oh, is that you? Of course, it was you. You know, <laughs> so. the amount of constructing we do, be it like as she's, as as you said, Joe, either the story itself or the characters, you do feel like you have start with this big pile of bricks and a load of cement and you just think okay how do I build this house but it's a different construction because obviously with the normally with the house obviously you start from the bottom and you work your way up whereas as a playwright you can start by putting half the roof on and maybe putting a window in and then maybe starting laying a few bricks and the house might fall down at one point but you still keep going regardless If the house falls down, it's way more interesting. Mm. <laughs> the house gets knocked down, then it's, it gets interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. It keeps standing unless you do what I do, where I hop around so much that then by the time I write end of play, I'm like, I'm great. I'm done. I did it. And then I scroll back and I'm like, I never finished scene four. I just said I would get back to it for weeks and I just never did it. <laughs> so by, by a building analogy, you start wanting to build um, a bungalow and end up with a 14-story apartment block where some of the apartments are missing doors. They're just missing doors. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, but it's fine. No one will notice. There's a, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, specifics for submissions and stuff like that when you're trying to get your play out there. You know, oh, yeah. a 10-minute play. Oh, we want one act, but they've got to be between 20. And, and so we, yeah have to be sort of mindful of that but then I also find that that is very limiting I don't want to you know then say the line slower I mean oh my god I, I can't be, <laughs> I can't, I can't be <laughs> writing a play with with a time frame in my mind because it's um I find that very limiting but yet you know if you're like I'm finding there's a quite a few places that want 30 minute plays and I'm thinking well I wrote one that was 40 minutes, but I guess if we talk faster, I mean, you know, I mean, what, <laughs> I could cut it. Uh, so I think there's that sort of, uh, that limitation of uh, what what, mm. what uh, agencies out there and, and whatever are looking for mm. and what we're doing. I do like that idea of sending in like a 10, a 10 page script and going, this, it may only be 10 pages, but it runs to 20 if you say it slow enough. <laughs> um, so Joe, final thought on the, skills of playwrights yeah you know i mean i think uh, first of all everybody covered some amazing aspects of being a playwright i mean i think the best skill that that we all can have is we just we have stories to tell don't give up like tell the story and if you get stuck on a story tell another one i have i have no less than 10 maybe a dozen plays that are unfinished even though i know how they're supposed to end or how i think they're going to end it's just it's gotten to a point where I'm like, you know, I need a different motivation in order to finish that play. At the same time, I'm writing and finishing 
five to 10 plays a month. So, you know, it's not that the writing has stopped and don't give up, just move on to something. Don't be afraid to put it down, shelve it, come back to it later on. I think, uh, I think the best playwrights are the ones that are constantly writing and honing their skills. The last piece, read, read, read other people's plays, get their, you know, understand their style. You don't have to adopt their style, but understand it so that you can mm. like, Oh, you know, I could use this little thing that they did here in, uh, in what I'm writing. Mm. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's changed my trajectory for sure. And how, how often I write and what I write. Um, yeah. And no matter how mundane it is, just write constantly. Uh, okay. Rachel, with some theatrical organizations replacing their artistic goals with social justice goals, do you think we could be seeing a return to the theater of social change of the 60s and 70s? I don't think that we're doing quite a return to theater of social justice or the, uh, theater for social change, but I think we're kind of marrying it with theater of the oppressed because a lot of the work that's coming out right now and a lot of the work that these companies are trying to highlight by committing themselves to social change is not necessarily work by anyone that's trying to highlight a specific issue, but it's work specifically by the people who are affected by that issue. And so we're seeing a lot of plays come out of a variety of different personal traumas and a variety of different personal experiences, but with the goal of social change, um, which I think definitely comes with its ups and downs um, for a lot of different reasons it you know it brings up a lot of different conversations and opinions about representation about experience about a variety of different things and also honestly about the mental health of the people writing I know anyone who's ever tried to write an autobiographical play even if it wasn't necessarily about a traumatic experience it's not it's not easy and I think a lot of playwrights are being called to do that right now and to publicly deal with a lot of issues that are not necessarily easy for them to handle. And that then they're be and then they're being critiqued on their execution of these ideas, which is a whole other can of worms that people have to deal with. So I think that theater is definitely becoming a beacon of social change, but it's coming specifically from the people who are living these experiences which puts us in a very interesting and crucial and important but also very rocky place mm. just through that you do get the debate of should you because I've had this discussion with many people about uh, society being fixated on making people write only what you know mm -hmm. or only who you are which you know to me sounds absolutely ludicrous because the idea of creativity is to create it's a it's a double-edged sword. I definitely feel that my work, when it does deal with controversial issues, focuses primarily on issues that I can contribute to as someone who's experienced mm. them. They're either, you know, plays about feminism or they're plays about Judaism or um, like uh, the autobiographical play that I wrote was about being a sperm donor kid and then growing up to be an egg donor. Mm. But I definitely wanted to like focus on the perspectives that I could bring. And then if I was dealing with any perspectives that I wasn't familiar with, I wanted to make sure that I was working with people who did have those experiences. Partially because, you know, you want it to be truthful if you're going to bother to do it at all. But yeah, also like you want the play to be listened to. I think people get um, discouraged or they think that like 
the experiences that are their personal experiences or the experiences of like their family members aren't as quote unquote interesting as whatever people think the hype topic is. And I don't necessarily think that that's true. I think that people just aren't necessarily looking in the spaces in their lives where they have those issues to bring to the front because they're not necessarily what the media is focusing on. Um, so like, that would be my challenge to anyone who's like, I don't have a place in this new world is like, yes, you absolutely do. You just, you know, you don't need to write about being mainstream. You need to write about like a cool quirky family thing that happened. I think it, as you said, it's important from an authenticity standpoint, you write what you know, but you're not, you shouldn't be limited to that. You know, I don't want to misappropriate anybody else's culture or identity, but I do think you can write well beyond your own scope of, of who you actually are. Mm. It comes Absolutely. down to, it comes down to research. It's like, it, it's, there's no different to writing a, a play set in a certain period of history. But yeah, it's, it's so true it's, though, the research, right? So mm -hmm. like when I read a military drama, as you see pictured here, which you can't tell on the podcast, but I directed A Few Good Men. Um, and that was, uh, that was about uh, 11 years ago. And I'm a Marine Corps veteran. And so when I, when I read, watch military, anything, you know, I've I watch it with a skeptical eye, you know, and I, you know, I, I know that uh, and kind of what Tony and, and Rachel are talking about, the people that have lived the lives that you are trying to create, they're going to look at your writing with a skeptical eye. Hmm. And so you have to have done the homework, make sure you, you've involved the right people, especially if it's beyond if it's if, it, if you're taking it serious, like if it's a serious conversation, right? Yeah. Um, otherwise, otherwise, people will look at Oh, yeah, the stereotypical side of what you've created versus, you know, the substance. I wrote I wrote a play called Nine Miles to Maryville. It's going to be featured mm -hmm. in the five the Fight Forward Festival in New York City. And it's about school shootings, but it's taken from the perspective of a Republican senator. Um instead, it's a completely, completely different take than what you would typically find um and and it's it's scary it's scary sometimes to put out the work too like mm. you know something that's controversial something that's going to you know have people read it and go what what is this and my hope is to play on those stereotypes that people and prejudices that people have in their writing especially in that show so that at the end i can break their hearts you mm. know and, and it's um and, and break it down that to, to the to the human element um so sometimes i do that too like I, i'll actually play towards the stereotype um in order to get a message across and i've written a lot of message driven shows you know child abuse stuff like that military mm -hmm. stuff uh homosexuality in the military things you know i've written i've written about a lot of things that uh, are controversial and you just have to one be prepared to 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 prove prove you know have, have a good proof of concept mm -hmm. but you also have to you know come at, come at it from a from a, a direction of love like you know you have to love your characters like I, I and i say this to everybody anybody i, I, I do playwriting cl classes locally and i say look if you can't walk away and find an ounce of love in your character then your character is too flawed to actually put into a story so that's even the ones you hate the most that should be hated the most there has to be something that you love about them as the playwright in regards to 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 the idea of social change though being inspired by theater, you saw it a lot in the wake of uh roe v wade there were so many playwrights that took to new play exchange with plays 
about or surrounding or inspired by that decision and it just it was like it was a swarm it was incredible the number of players that just came to light almost overnight and you know most of those were just driven by rage which you know again is it's it's an emotion of some description theater has its way of maybe not influencing social change but social change in as a influence on theater and quite a quite a big one as well i think it's interesting that people try to i don't know pretend that there is just fluff when even something like fluffy on broadway the message can still just be like maybe you should be nice to people but that's still a message that's still something that you're sending yeah. um, and i think that's just that ebbs and flows with wherever the political spectrum is at the moment like there were a lot of plays about Roe v. Wade because the people had to get them out. Nothing may ever come of those plays, but like, it makes sense that the writers had to write them. One of the things that is so interesting that we can never predict as playwrights is how the audience is going to interpret the words that you've written. Like we mm. just, we have no idea. And it's so funny because I mean, obviously we've all been to a billion shows, right? At no point do I ever walk out of a play or out of a show and go man the writer blah 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 like they must really like and it's but yet when we write these words down you're right we take we put a lot of we put a lot of emotion into our into what we think might happen a lot of energy into what we think might happen versus just doing it like it's a great great point rachel you're right rachel i think we are kind of marrying the two elements of art and and the than the reflection of society for our time. I think the other thing that's coming along with it, which I think is really exciting, um, is different measures of accessibility for these new pieces. Theaters that are doing it correctly are going out of their way to not only put on shows that discuss new ideas, but to have cheaper ticket initiatives, to have community nights, depending on what the subject of the show is, to really go out of their way to not only put the shows out there, but to make sure that a bigger variety of people are seeing these shows and interacting with these shows. And I think that's something we didn't necessarily have back in the 60s and 70s when that access wasn't necessarily there, or at least the talking about that access wasn't as widespread. Mm. So that's the thing. I, I think people are so scared of people not liking something. They then immediately leap to the, it shouldn't be done in the first place. Which is wrong. Everyone should have the prerogative to love or hate something. That doesn't mean it just shouldn't be made at all. I think I've said this before. I think the human race needs to be reintroduced to the phrase, in my opinion. Because people are very happy just to leap to the internet and go, this is shit. This is awful. It's like, no, it's shit in your opinion. So true. So there have there have been ten saw movies made, but I am not taking to the internet and telling everyone how bloody awful they are. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> In my opinion. <laughs> yeah, Rachel, your your final thought. Yeah, I mean it's it's such a big question, and I think it's one of those open ended questions that people are going to be working through for a very 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 long time. <laughs> Um, but I do think it's a very exciting place to be. I think it's really inspiring to be writing in a time where we really are emphasizing the idea that every story matters and no story is too big or too small to garner merit. Um, and I'm just really excited to 
see what comes out of it and see all the different forms that people take to attack it. Okay, uh, Tony, when it comes to educating children about theatre, what do you think are some key things that should be taught? And are there some things still being taught that should be considered outdated? I spoke to a number of theater educators about these issues and got some very, um, very good feedback, including some things that will change how I direct when I'm directing younger actors. But some of the things that should be taught that are not being taught properly are projection. And within that category, I would include diction, breathing, voice quality, and voice control. And I will blame microphones for that because so many young actors are used to having their voice amplified that they don't learn how to properly project. Mm. One director um, or teacher told me that if you actually teach young actors, especially teenagers, to project, you'll get more organic expression from them when they're conveying their character just by, just by getting them to be louder in the right way. Mm. Proper theater ed etiquette is also something that um, it's good to know, you know, how to be um, it's good to know when to say thank you five and when is call time, just all of those little details that, you know, we might take for, for granted. But again, if you don't have the experience in the theater, just getting along and being appreciative of your crew, um, being somebody that, you know, the, that a director will want to work with again, all starts with common courtesy. One of the other things that should be taught is, uh, one of my friends calls fire the judge. And that's learning to kill the, the constant self-critic that's within all of us. And I think that that self-criticism, whether it's lack of self-esteem or just wanting to be perfect, if we can let go of that, you'll get a much better performance. Um, mm -hmm. Let somebody else judge that, but don't judge yourself in such a way that it prevents you from being the full version of yourself or your character. And then finally, Shakespeare should be taught to, uh, to young actors and older actors of any age. I think it's just a necessary skill just for the appreciation of the language and the history. And we can so learn so much from the bard. Um, and it's not, it's not necessarily taught as much or as early as it should be. Some of the things that I think are outdated, um, and this one was actually a surprise to me, but method acting, when it comes to young actors, um, using their muscle memory or asking them to recall, you know, tra traumatic or emotional experiences from a young age can actually do more harm than good. Um, there are other techniques for drawing that emotion out of them. Kids today have so much more to deal with than when I was young in terms of the stresses and pressures. I just worried about getting good grades. Um, but today kids have to worry about mental health and bullying and God forbid, you know, school shootings and pandemics and all of these things that are, you know, make real life something that can be traumatic and theater should be a safe space for them, a space for them to explore emotions without necessarily having to deal with the stresses in their own lives. So we want it, we want kids to feel comfortable getting out of their comfort, comfort zone. So we should make it a, a safe space for them to do that. Um, and then a sort of along the same lines, um, you know, the old school directors who thought that they could get the most out of people by yelling at them or being tough with them, um, that doesn't really 
work as well these days, or at least it shouldn't. It shouldn't have any place in theater. You know, there's there's just no place anymore in theater for um, dictating or getting people to be afraid of you and getting them to do what you want, especially with young actors. So when I was running the Huntsville Theater Company, uh, I started a program called Theater is My Passion, and we made it free for um, kids eight to 14 years old, sort of like an after school. And uh, what I would say is you got to get the parents a, a lot, you know, showing up on time, coming to rehearsals. I mean, the children are reliant in most cases for the parents to be their means of getting to somewhere on time and, and that sort of thing, or, or even helping them run lines and, and that sort of thing. So I think also there has to be definitely uh, that commitment from uh, parents uh, to respect the 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 timelines of rehearsal and shows and and that sort of thing so uh, I think it extends to the whole family. My wife and I run a children's theater program through the theater that we're associated with locally and um, we have a couple things that uh, that Tony and Jan have said. Um, one of the things that Tony has said previously was that as a director, you want to have an environment where um, people want to come back, right? People want to be part of of yeah. your of your uh, of the art. They want to be part of it. And similar to playwriting, I set a goal, a common goal as a director. Here's our common goal, and this is how we're going to achieve that. But to Jan's point, I don't do it when we're working with the kids. I don't do it just with the kids. I do it with the with the with the parents or whoever's going to be the primary person. We set those goals together. Um, and does everybody do it? No, not everybody. Not I mean, it, is, it, does it fix everything? There isn't. This is this is theater. There isn't yeah. a fix everything button somewhere, you know. And that's part of the fun of it. Like that's part of the challenge of of needing to to piece it all together. I will say that you know believing believing in your people, believing in the art that they're going to create as a director, as somebody who teaches children theater, like that's, that's the most important piece. They don't come back. They don't, I mean, even with my, even with the work that I, I do, like I have a, I have a, this silly, um, the silly thing called playground rules that I created during the pandemic. And it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a 10 episode show. It features all kids from, from my theater groups. So they wouldn't do that if I wasn't continuing, if they, if they didn't trust that I was going to continue to do the same things that I've been doing as somebody involved in children's theater. Mm. Um, it's so vital though. It's so important that you believe in them. You care about them um, and their progress. The other thing I found is when, especially when you get, as Tony said, um, theater moms, when you get that really intense environment of theatre that kids are involved in, especially like your big scale, like your school musicals or your school productions, they get so focused on the making sure the kids get it perfect that they forget that this is a creative process. It's called play, for God's sake. And if there's anyone who deserves to just play, it's kids. And I wouldn't, I would, I, I'm all for, you know, running rehearsals because I get people are on a deadline there are, the show has to go up at a certain stage people have to learn their lines fine but I think it also makes sense to start and end that very intense focus period with just something fun because those are the things that stick in my head from when I went to like um 
drama clubs and when I did stuff at school was just the games we played. We um, had a game that we used to play at a summer camp I went to called Zip Zap Boing. Mm -hmm. And I still remember the rules to this day because it was just fun. There was no overly serious about it. And I think that's what will bring kids back is a sense that, yes, they, they did something at the end and they can stand there and think, wow, I was on a stage, I was in a play, but they also had fun. And I think sometimes the grown-ups forget that. I know for myself and for a lot of other kids growing up and trying to be in an educational theater environment, by the time you get to college and you're actually like trying to get a BFA, you can't learn because you're so busy trying to get an A in theater, which is not a realistic thing that anybody can do, except, you know, you do have to be graded. That I feel like so many kids and so many people who really do want to become professionals leave and enter the professional world with the only goal they've ever had being, I have to get an A in theater. And that doesn't actually lend itself to being a productive, creative professional. Um, and I don't know, you know, obviously like school programs are different. You do have to grade people. Um, but I, having that instilled at such a young age is so harmful. Mm. It just, there's no sense of play. There's no sense of anything. And it, it makes you less likely to stand up and say like, Hey, I'm uncomfortable doing this scene because of a thing going on in my life right now. I don't want to not do the assignment, but could I do a different scene? Yeah. I think I got lucky. Cause I went, I went to a high school that was very theater centric in Seattle and we, our grades were somewhere between a thousand points and 10 million points. And everybody walked away with A's. <laughs> See, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I, I need, I need more drama classes. I, I took four my senior year. Like, yeah, look at all these A's. I am so academically prepared. <laughs> um, I wish um, families did take their children to see theater, uh, age-appropriate theater, obviously, uh, just to expose them to seeing what goes on, uh, seeing that side of it, and. Uh, because there is a magic yeah there's a magic to it i think getting kids involved in theater from a young age is a good thing they may they may not you know get bitten by the bug but at least let them see what we see the, the passion i think is a great thing to have i mean it may not be you know the thing they want to do for the rest of their lives or they may want to be you know not want to be as obsessed with it as we are um <laughs> but at least having that experience or having that option to feel something about it you know if you take if you take kids to theater and they hate it and they never want to go again then then that's fine but I think you know as you said Rachel having them grow up to a certain age having never set foot in a theater or never been part of or seen a performance I think it's a travesty personally it's really sad and it's also like I mean I don't need every kid to get bitten by the bug like lord knows we do not need that but like it it also teaches good theater education also teaches so many other skills that have nothing to do with theater it teaches problem solving it teaches how to be calm under pressure Mm. and I think all of those are lacking a lot in other subjects that kids just can't get from other places Mm. I always think it's bizarre though that theater is always an afterthought for education and yet in certain parts, especially in the US, in certain parts of the US, sports is like thrust down kids' throats, like basically when they're big enough to walk. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that is true. Um, I actually used to coach 
youth soccer. I coached my daughter's teams when they were very young. And I think there are a lot of parallels between, at least for me, the way I coached soccer and the way I coach acting and directing. Um, you know, if it's not fun, it's not worth it. And like Rachel just said, you know, you can learn about a lot of a lot of life skills about teamwork and collaboration and working under stress and um, all of those things. If you have a positive experience when you're young, you can carry that forward. I think the hardest the hardest thing is for in, in this, at least in this country, is finding finding those opportunities for the kids at an early age to be involved in theater and because the opportunities are boundless in sports like it's like from the age of four in soccer baseball and other sports um but you're right in theater it's not there like i mean a this is a great analogy i think in my community we had 560 kids in little league which is baseball and that's age mm -hmm. five to twelve we have two children's theater groups in the same in the same area one has nine the other has 18 and the age group is actually spans a bigger bigger group it's age five to age 18 for both for both of these companies and it's just it's so unfortunate and it costs less to do the children's theater programs than it does to do the little league and it's so it's so wrong like it's not the right direction as far as that goes but yeah i mean it's we we did we actually discussed this question way back at the start of the series about um the phrase used to describe uh degrees linked to the arts as mickey mouse degrees right um and that stigma still exists you kind of you hear people talk about wanting to go and do theater or dance or music at university and the response is always really could you not do something a bit more useful <laughs> like i mean honestly even in new york even when i'm actively working on a show and i'm not working my day job and that's the only thing i'm doing people are like oh but like what do you do for money and i'm like this that just comes right back to it um parents are always thinking you know what what's going to be best for my child monetary wise but i think part of the the issue there though is that there is this fixation of it being your full-time job and yes for some people they are very lucky and that is wonderful but I have always said what I do nine to five Monday to Friday is my job and that is what I do writing performing producing this this is who I am beautiful yeah Oh, I love that. Um, we, we, we kind of swerved on the topic a little bit, but uh, <laughs> Tony, your final thought. <laughs> final thought on educating not just young people, but all people about theater is making it fun and keeping it fun and making it something that they'll want to come back to in whatever capacity, even if it makes them a better audience member down the road. Um, just keeping it fun from the beginning is the key. Uh, hey, Jan. With the increasing popularity in extreme theatre and people asking what is normal, when it comes to theatre, do you believe producers, directors, and indeed writers could be steering away from realism in favour of the spectacle? When I think of um, spectacle theatre, I'm thinking of special effects, big musicals, uh, uh, you know, just larger than life uh, uh, type of um, uh, type of events, uh, type of shows. 
and I think, and I, and I understand that right now a lot of theaters are going that route because they're trying to make up some money because of a uh, lost three years. And, you know, I get that it's the bums in the seats and it's going to pay and blah, blah, blah. Uh, the big musical is not the norm. It's just a type. It's a it's a genre. It's a very popular one. And I get it. Um, I like to see uh, a musical as well as, you know, a comedy, as well as a drama, as well as a, a mystery. Um, but I think that we've got to we've got to rebuild that and make all types of theater normal i think for us as um the people who are in control of this and in, in the professions but specifically producers as i'm talking about now or directors um finding the the correct venues and rebuilding it up and um not every play needs to be played uh, on those massive stages, and I and I think it gets a little intimidating, and it gets really um, not cost effective. I mean, you're going to lose money. That's why they don't do it. But we've got to put our. I think some resources have to be put into the smaller, more intimate spaces, and and start building it up there. That's normal theater is is a theater is a, is a production that's done in a space that's appropriate for that production all theater is normal all theater is it's just that we've got to we've got to put the pegs in the the circles and the circles and the squares and the squares i mean obviously and and it doesn't always have to be big budget start small and start building our audiences from there there is also this odd obsession with bigger spaces I know we see that a lot here. We have so many shows do this big thing about transferring from off-Broadway to Broadway, and then they flop on Broadway because they were constructed for this more intimate space. And everyone is like, but it's the same show. And just like, okay, but you could have let Too it flourish big. for years in its smaller <laughs> space. Like you could have continued yeah. to let it run. You didn't have to do that. Yeah. 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 And it's, 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 it's far better to take you know, a show into a, a 75 seat theatre and have to run for three weeks because the the shows keep selling out rather than try and run it in a 350 seat theatre and not being able to fill the blooming thing. Especially as yeah. Jan said, if, if it's in if it's intimate action, you're lost in, you know, the massive theatres. It's so true. When you sit in a big theatre and their voice is coming from a box stage right, and stage left it's not coming from the actor that's not what you're hearing out up in the you know eighth row on the balcony type of thing and yet if you were an intimate theater you, you'll see their eyes water you'll you'll see them take that breath you hear that voice coming from that actor from that character uh there's, there's something beautiful about it i i think a lot of theater gets lost on the big stages when i directed wait until dark <clears throat> which um we did the Fred frederick knott version of wait until dark uh we uh i i used a lot of my um a lot of my companies uh, broken arts entertainment uh sound scape to build it so we used a lot of the sound sound background we had uh, we had over 240 sound cues which included a constantly running 1940s new york city background like that was a constant running aspect of it it was really incredible it was really incredibly done but we couldn't have done the show without miking the act actors 
So we had to hide, we had to hide the mics. Now, this pissed off all kinds of theater traditionalists. Teach them to project. I'm like, but I need you to hear my lead character breathing. I need you to hear those moments where she is absolutely in a panic. I need you to hear the sinister sighs of, of rote. I need you to hear those. Because if you can't hear, if you don't feel that, if it doesn't send a chill up your spine, then am I really, are you really, am I really doing doing justice to the show? You know, on the uh, on the extremism part of theater, I've always been, I've always been the type that taught when I teach theater or I do anything that the goal of this art is always to expand your limit. Um, and so coming up with new ways to tell stories i mean i think i think those should be embraced and there's there's definitely a place for those those opportunities um as well as you know the traditional standards the things that we have always come to love that are going to make a theater money regardless of you know whether it you know, like the sound of music is always going to pack a house right mm. uh, but having a space for art you know in 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 and I know we've talked a lot about professional theater and stuff, but if we break it down to like the community theater, which is where the organic organic aspects of theater kind of begin for a lot of folks, um, having a way to have an art, something that's blow, you know, that, that is surreal or breaks down realism instead, whatever, however we want it to do, there should be a spot for that too. It's part of the art. Like, it's hard to say that we have, we are only going to do these standards and that's how our theater is going to continue. Because it's not. Eventually it's going to be, you're going to cycle through to irrelevant stories or storylines that uh, have a political um, situation that becomes relevant, but in the wrong direction now. You know, like those sort of things. Mm -hmm. um, and you end up getting, you know, you end up having, so... So you have to create that space because there's going to be as well as new art. And I know this is kind of a shameless plug for all of us that are playwrights that, you know, continue to try to get our work out there, but new art, have a, have an avenue for new art as well. And I think, and I, that's what I try to, that's what I try to do with broken arts. You know, we try to, we try to create new art and do it in a way that is cost-effective, but creates, I, I don't want to say exposure because that's kind of a bad word in our world. But it does create opportunity for you to share your art. And I think that's, you know, that's in regards to what it is, like it's it's your art. Let's share it. But I think it's it's quite a relief that there are, again, shameless plugs. Uh there are people like uh yourself, Joe, and me, and Jonathan Cook, who does uh, gather gather by the ghost light, who are just happy to have the work and the writers there. Cause let's face it, we've got a bottomless pit of material i mean i'm pretty sure i could keep theatrical shenanigans going for like 25 years just based <laughs> on the people i know through new play exchange alone right um and it's an amazing thing and yet the the big theaters are quite happy just to take you know every teen film made in the 90s and turn it into a musical <laughs> and call that air quotes new theater <laughs> um jan your final thought on the subject Theatre can be done anywhere. Theatre mm. does not need to be done in a theatre. No. Theatre can be done in, I can be out 
outdoors. I've done it outdoors. Uh, during the pandemic, I did theater in my backyard uh, just to keep things going. Um, theater can be done in parks. Theater can be done in a, a legion hall. Theater can be done in church halls. It can be done in pubs. Uh, you're seeing a lot of this, like these 10 minute plays being popped up in pubs and, yeah. and stuff like that. That's not, we're going to make that normal. That's what we need to do is make that normal. It, it, it doesn't have to be spectacular. It doesn't have to be a spectacle. It doesn't have to be spectacular. It just has to move something inside of them. Either that tear or that smile or that joy or just that satisfaction. Mm. And um, we can do that. We're very capable. Okay, final question. Uh, if you could write, produce, or star in a play about a famous figure, who would you want it to be and why? And we'll start with Joe. Ah, man, I've gone, uh, I've gone all over the place on this. So um, I would, I would, and I've, only because I've toyed with it so much, um, I would do something based on religion. Um, not that I'm not that I'm religious, uh, but I would find somebody a non kind of a big player maybe back in their day, but not uh, not completely relevant exactly. So my thought kind of centered around Joan of Arc um, and doing a play because she believed that angels had come to her and communicated with her that uh, that. Uh, the French were to rise up and revolt against uh, against the the oppressive situation that they were in. Um, so I would want to write, I want to write a show about Joan of Arc, but do it in a manner that also shows how religion um, creates war and how how that and that that process when you put those together has advanced weaponry to the point where it is today and for what cause uh Rachel um so I I love historical fiction I write a lot of historical fiction so this was a hard question because I have so many um mm -hmm. but I think the one on my brain lately um is I want to write about Victorian female authors um and I would love to do kind of like a weird group play that has like Mary Shelley and Charlotte Bronte and all of these different people together um to talk talk about like forbidden expression and the weird ways that women get into writing um, and just like their odd relationships as little outsiders. Yeah. That sounds cool. I would see that. Hmm? <laughs> Challenge laid. <laughs> uh, Tony. Albert Einstein intrigues me. He was a pacifist, pacifist, but he was the key person to persuade the United States that they needed to build nuclear weapons before the Germans did. And that decision to persuade the United States to do that, he later called his greatest mistake. So he was a complicated figure despite being so brilliant. He was Jewish, but he was agnostic and he was not a Zionist. He was German, but he emigrated to the United States in 1933 to avoid being targeted by the Nazis. He was famous, but for scientific theories that were beyond the comprehension of most ordinary people. And he was married, but he had many, many extra, extramarital affairs. So his whole life was full of paradoxes, which is to me just 
very interesting for being such a logical man. He did so many things that were conflicting or didn't necessarily make make sense. And I would probably want to write it and be in it, but I would <laughs> probably try to find somebody a little more famous than me if I was could actually get it written. So. Uh, and finally, Jan. Uh, well, Joe, when you said religion, I was like, oh, man, that's kind of where I was going to go. <laughs> I would love to write about, and I must be this time of year, I'd love to write about Mary and Joseph, but I want to put them in the early 1960s in Yorkshire during the sexual sort of revolu uh, revolution type of thing. It just sort of fascinates me to take something from a story that most people are aware of, bring it into a more modern day um, concept, but not today's today's, but I'm sort of thinking the early 1960s, sort of an era that I'm more familiar with anyway. Um, and uh, I'm putting it into Yorkshire, England, because that fascinates me. I live in Canada. I am from Yorkshire. I, I'm always delving into the history and I, I kind of want to still live that over there but here um okay we are out of time but guys thank you so much for joining me it's been absolutely brilliant and hilarious at certain points <laughs> thank you for having us it's been a wonderful thank you opportunity so much for, us. <laughs> for sure thank you and that brings us to the end of another fascinating panel chat and I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Once again, a huge thank you to Joe, Jan, Rachel and Tony for joining me and making sure you've got someone to listen to other than me. We'll be back with another episode next month, but if you'd like to show your support, you can do with a like, comment, follow or share on either our Facebook or Instagram page. Alternatively, you can visit our Buy Me A Coffee page and treat me to a pre-show cocktail. I, of course, will be back with the next episode, but in the meantime, I've been Rachel Feeney-Williams, this is Theatrical Shenanigans, bringing down the curtain and saying, I hope you can join us next time. Theatrical Shenanigans part of an RFW Scripts production, found on Spotify, Amazon Music, Podbean, and anywhere else you can find your podcasts. Music is written and produced by Chris Cody.